0: God, you are indeed glorious. All your works praise you. We pray that you would tune our hearts rightly to sing your praise as well. Help us, O Lord, to see what you have spoken to us in your word and seeing it that we would hear and hearing it in the depths of our heart that it would transform us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. We are in our 26th exposition from the book of Hebrews. This is our third sermon from this chapter, from Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, this was always the chapter I wasn't sure how long it was going to take us to get through. You remember we spent five years in the book of Luke, and people would ask, how long are you going to be in Hebrews? And I would say, I- I'm not really sure. You know, Hebrews 11 is, it's, it's a fascinating chapter. It deals with with the, the faith of the saints who have gone before. And it covers a, a, a broad variety of people. Some of them we would call heroes of the faith in many ways. Others, we kind of have to wonder what in the world they're doing there. And so we're going to be camped out in Hebrews 11 for a little while. But I want you to see why the author of Hebrews is doing this and why it mattered to the original audience and why it matters to us today. I want you to look back at Hebrews 10 verse uh, 34. He's reminding the congregation of what it has cost them to follow Christ. And he says in verse 34, he said, You had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. See, what's happening is there's persecution coming upon the church, and they're losing things. Some lost property. They've certainly lost their reputation. Others have been put in jail, and some of them will lose their lives. And so, as any of us who are experiencing that would be apt to do, they're wondering, you know, is it worth it? Is it worth it to follow Christ if, if it's going to lead me one day to such loss? You know, some of us may wonder that question as well because you look at the culture around us and you realize that in in a decade, in two decades, it may not be so easy to be a believer. You consider just how the world has shifted in its ethics over the last decade. And if that trajectory continues, and only the Lord knows if it will, but if you are a people who hold to biblical ethics, it will be costly to you. And so you might be asking the same question. Is it worth it? And what Hebrews is aiming to do is is give us that example of a life that counted the cost of following Christ, and that cost may include everything from social alienation to prison to death, and then faithfully and joyfully followed him. And that's what these examples in chapter 11 are are going to do. Even though they, they preceded the coming of the Lord Jesus, they were looking forward to the coming Messiah. We look back to him. And so in Hebrews, the goal has been to to show us the beauty of the Christian faith, the beauty of faith in Christ. I just want to rehearse for you some of the things that we've seen in the last few months. In Hebrews chapter 4, we were told that we have this great high priest who's able to sympathize with us. You know, you you may have been through things in your life where you feel like nobody else understands. And that may be true from an earthly perspective, but The Lord Jesus, our great high priest in heaven, he understands. He's experienced everything you've experienced in terms of temptation and difficulty and trial, and yet he remained faithful. He understands what you're going through. Hebrews 7, he ever lives to intercede for us in heaven. Hebrews 8, by his sacrifice, our sins are remembered no more. Hebrews 9, we have a clean conscience because of his blood. Hebrews 10, we're perfected for all time by his offering. And the cherry on top that we'll get to in chapter 13 is he promises, I'll never leave you or forsake you. And the reason that, that Hebrews has spent so much time talking about all that is ours in Christ is that when we understand that, when we see the glory of the Lord Jesus and what he's done for us in the gospel, the cost of following him becomes a whole lot smaller, doesn't it? It doesn't seem like nearly as big a deal when we consider what Jesus has done for us. And so Hebrews 11 is meant to deepen your faith so that you and I would be so enthralled, so amazed by the Lord Jesus that we would count it all worth it to follow him. Uh, We're going to look at Hebrews 11, uh, verse 3 today, but I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 as well for context. Hebrews 11, starting at verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation, For by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. A number of years ago... uh, A scientist who was a Christian was asked to address college students concerning a biblical view of creation, and so he taught. He taught what the scriptures teach about creation, but in the room also was the famed atheist Richard Dawkins, and during a time of question and answer, Dawkins began to make the case for atheistic evolution. Well, what was fascinating was after every assertion that Dawkins made, the creationist asked a simple question. How do you know that? Dawkins would speak about how the earth was billions of years old. How do you know that? He would speak of evolutionary theory. How do you know that? Well, finally, Dawkins gave the answer, because we all agree that's what happened. And he's talking about scientists, but he's talking specifically about scientists who all share the same presuppositions as he does. You know, they, anyone in the scientific world who goes against those basic presuppositions, we could call them the golden calves of, of science, w- will automatically be marginalized and viewed as uncredible. Well, I tell you that not to critique science or the scientific world, but to pose a question. How do you know what you know? How do you know what you know? I I don't mean trivial things like what you had for breakfast, and probably half of us can't even remember that by this point. But how do you know the things you know that matter in this world? The answer to that question is going to tell you a lot about your faith. It's, It's the basis. Our faith is the basis through which we see and understand the world around us. And so Hebrews 11, this great by-faith chapter, it starts us by looking back to the creation. The creation of the universe by the word of God. And it's sort of giving us a litmus test here, an illustration for how faith works. Because you and I and everybody on the face of the earth lives in some way by faith. We live in accord with what we have faith is true. And so, like Dawkins, if we believe in a godless, coincidental, chaotic universe, then we're going to live in accord with that. But if we believe the story of the Bible is true from creation to consummation, if we believe that it's the real metanarrative of human existence, then the only logical response is for you and me to live by faith regardless of what it may cost us. As we look at this text this morning, there's just a couple of things I want you to see so that we, like the saints that are outlined in this chapter, would more fully entrust ourselves by faith to Jesus Christ. And those two things are, first, revelation, and second, redemption. I think those are the two things that are at heart in verse 3. And so that's what we're going to focus on today. Let's talk first about revelation, and when I say revelation, I'm not talking about the the last book of the scriptures. We dealt with that enough this morning during Sunday school. I mean God's self-revelation, that there is a God who has chosen to reveal himself to his creation, and sometimes theologians will say that there are two volumes of God's self-revelation. The first is creation, and so just as an artist reveals something of Himself in His artwork, God the Creator has revealed who He is in His creation. Uh, this wondrous creation, with, with all of its beauty, with man as its pinnacle, is intended to cause us to rejoice in our Creator God. It's, it's intended to show us the beauty of the Creator God. That's the design of it all for us to see and glorify the Creator. Even the way we live is intended to be modeled after the character of that God. There is a right way and a wrong way to live, and it's modeled after the character of God Himself. And the more we reflect to Him, the more we see His glory in the world, the more we enjoy Him and His creation. Now, you know, that's not how it typically works out, is it? You know, in in fact, in our sinful state, none of us naturally do that. Romans 1 tells us that instead of the creation giving us opportunity to worship our creator, what we do instead is we worship the creation. We give glory to the creation And rather than modeling our lives after his own perfection, we we live our lives in accord with what we want in order to be satisfied by this creation. That's nothing new. Just go back to the garden with Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve were walking in the garden, they had all the privileges of knowing God as friend, and yet they turned away from him. And through Satan's enticement, they believed that God was holding out his best from them. And so they decided, you know, I think we would make better gods than God does. We, we would write a better story than God does. And the reality of this creator God who has said, hey, you have this whole world as your own. There's just one thing you can't do. Eat the fruit of this one tree. That became a very inconvenient truth for them. And so they ate the fruit and took the place of the creator. I read this week about the author J.K. Rowling, author of the Harry Potter series. She sold something like half a billion books. Potter is no conservative by any stretch, and yet she has enough common sense to look at the world and say, you know, you people are nuts. W- w- with, with biblical, uh, excuse me, with, with the tra- changes in sexuality and sexual identity and transgenderism, she looked at the world and she said, this can't happen. A, a man cannot become a woman. Now, uh, she's no Christian, and yet... The liberal world has totally marginalized her. I I saw this week the backlash against her is that, that her books are now being resold without her name on the cover. They want her books, they don't want her. Isn't that a great picture of what happened in the garden? They wanted God's creation, but they didn't want God himself. That's why Adam and Eve's sin in the garden was so defiant, because they inserted themselves onto the throne that belongs to the Creator alone. And sadly, that's baked into the DNA of all mankind. You know, the creation account doesn't just explain how we got here, but explains how we got like this. How, how it explains what's wrong with us. Per Scripture's own diagnosis, natural man without Christ is a fool. Look with me at this. Look with me at Psalm 14 for a moment. This is David, and he's talking about natural man. When man has not come to saving faith in Christ, he says in Psalm 14, verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They're corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There's none who does good. And then look over at Proverbs 30 for a moment. Just the next book. This is a, these Proverbs are part of a series written by a little-known author, Ager or Augur. Look at verse one, The man declares, I am weary, O oh God. I am weary, O oh God, and worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. Now, if you're looking for a life verse, let me say this is probably not the one to go to. And yet, it's the human experience. I am too stupid to be a man. I, I have not the understanding of a man. I haven't learned wisdom, nor have I the knowledge of the Holy One. And if you were to look over at Psalm 22, it says, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. You know, this explains how people can look out at the world and think that it all happened by chance. That's not a product of science. That is a product of ignorance. To look at the world and say, I do not want to see the creator. I do not want his name on the cover of this book. And so I look at the world and I say, there is no God. And God says, that is utterly foolish. Now, thankfully, God didn't leave us in our ignorance. And as I mentioned, there are two volumes of of his revelation. The first was creation. The second is what we call scripture. It's the Bible. In the scriptures, God has told us everything we need to know for life and godliness. The scriptures are the ultimate authority for how we know what we know. Faith, as it's revealed in Scripture, is the starting point for all knowledge. If you want to know true truth, it starts by faith in reading the Scriptures. This world only makes sense, and we can only live rightly in this world when we live them in accord with what the Scriptures teach. And so, from the very beginning, Hebrews is saying, you've got to get a grasp on creation, that it was created, the whole universe was created by the Word of God. And if you miss that, your whole life is going to be out of joint. If you try to live a life without this God, this life will make no sense. But again, there's this tendency among fallen humanity to make ourselves the highest authority. And so you, you go back to Dawkins. How do you know that? I know it because that's what we say. That's what all the scientists say. And as silly as that is, you and I do it too, don't we? We know things simply because we believe them. Or because we understand them. Or the mantra of our world today is because we feel it. Feelings rule in our world today. But when we make ourselves the final arbiter of truth, we become the highest authority. We must be able to say as Christians, I know it because God has said it in his word. To to go against that and to set ourselves up with any other source of truth is a rebellion against the creator God. Our own intellects can't be trusted as the arbiter of truth. Our feelings can't be trusted as the arbiter of truth. Our reason can't be trusted. And if we follow those things without submitting them to the scriptures, that's idolatry those things, as good as they are, become idols to us. Everything has to be filtered through the Word of God. That's why verse 3 says, By faith we understand. Life only makes sense when lived according to what God has revealed in His Word. That brings us back to the original question. How do we know what we know? And Hebrews is saying... This world that we live in, we make sense of it only by faith in the revealed Word of God. Scripture is the only guide for how we make sense of this world. And, And I know that you and I live in an age where science and faith are sort of pitted against each other as if they're two very different things and you can either trust the science or you can trust faith, but you can't trust both. I just want you to think for a second. Back to the Reformation. At the time of the Reformation, 500 years ago, Christianity was spreading throughout the Western world, and one of the results of the Reformation was an interest in science that was unlike any period in history before. They want, these believers wanted to see and understand the world, the amazing world that their God had created. And so when science and faith are pitted against each other, that's a false dichotomy because science, when rightly interpreted, will only testify to the truths of Scripture. But you know, going back to Dawkins and all these scientists that say it is this way because we say it's this way, and faith needs to stay out of it, they're actually acting according to faith as well, aren't they? I think it takes a lot of faith to look at something as incredibly complex as the human eye and say that it all came together by evolutionary chance. It takes a lot of faith, doesn't it? Or the human brain. It it is more powerful than the world's greatest supercomputer. And you want to say that it came together by sheer random mutations? I don't have that kind of faith. That's why Psalm 14.1 says that rejecting the word of God is foolishness. Because denying God denies the very building blocks by which we think. Have you ever heard somebody say something like this? I would never follow a God who allows such injustice to happen in the world. Or I would never follow a God who allows evil in the world. Do you know what you should say to them when they say that? If this universe is just the product of random chaos, then how do you have any idea what evil or justice are in the first place? Do you know where you got those ideas? From God himself. The idea of good and evil exists because we have a God who is good. Justice exists because we have a God who is just. And so atheism is actually stealing capital from Christian thought to try to articulate the very thoughts that it it seeks to undermine with Christianity. Atheists have no ground for believing that abstract principles exist at all. And so the mantras of our culture, things like equality and love, those concepts don't exist in a random universe. They only exist in in a universe that is governed by a God who determines what those things are. And so by faith, we understand. One pastor that I was reading said, Faith is the righteous reflex to God's revelation. Faith is the righteous reflex to God's revelation. And so the Bible, from beginning to end, intends to bring us to a crisis of faith. What do I trust in? What do I believe? And so you come to Genesis 1 1, and you're confronted with a crisis of faith. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, you and I weren't there. So how do we know what happened? Charles Spurgeon's really helpful here. He says, The facts about creation must be the subject of faith. It is true that they can be substantiated by the argument from design and in other ways. But I believe God has not made even that matter of the creation of the universe perfectly clear to human reason. In other words, God didn't lay all of this out in, an, in a way that we can comprehensively understand it. Why? He, he says men like to have everything laid down according to the rules of mathematical precision, but God desires for them to exercise faith. And so God confronts us from the very beginning. Will you trust my revelation? or are you going to trust your own devices? That personally is why I, I believe God created the world in six literal 24-hour days, because I think that God in the Scriptures goes to great lengths to communicate that, and you could say, well, what about evolution? What about all these things? And, and we could talk about that, but I'm always going to take the, 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 the reading of what the Scriptures say, and the plainest reading of Scriptures is that, that God created the world in six days. And I think he intends for us to believe that. We as Christians read the revelation of the one who knows what we don't know, the one who knows how to make sense of it all, and we receive that by faith. Now, not only do we receive it, we rejoice in it. Because the wonder of creation declares the glory of God. The creation rightly appreciated shows us the magnificence of God. And my mom and I were talking the other day. There is something about sunsets in Beaufort in January that are just greater than anything the greatest of painters has ever come up with. A a January Beaufort sunset is astounding. And the Christian sees that and we're not going to say, oh, I love that sunset. We're going to say, what an amazing God. That he could create something so glorious. And when we look at this, we're not just getting a glimpse of the beauty of his creation, but a a glimpse of the glory of his his multicolored, beautiful attributes. And so we look at all of life, the, the atoms, the molecules, the waves in the ocean, the tides day after day, with all of its mundaneness that happens right under our eyes, And we realize all of this, every molecule of it, is acting at God's command. We don't have to wonder how the blade of grass happened to get there or how the giraffe's neck got so long. It got there because the sovereign creator God willed it to be there, and at all times it acts in obedience to his word. And what does Hebrews tell us? He did it all out of nothing. The physical universe, God didn't go to Lowe's and buy the parts for the physical universe. He made it all, we would say, from scratch. He he created it by his word. The Lord Christ spoke and everything that is came into existence. We miss this in the English translations, but if we were reading the Hebrew creation account and we came to let there be light and there was light, that's actually much more complex than the Hebrew reads, It's a command, be light, and light was. It's amazing that our God could do this all out of nothing. And so when Hebrews says, by faith we understand, it's not saying that we can write a book on all these things. It's saying we live our lives in accord with these realities. that I serve a God who is so wondrous, so majestic, so powerful, that he was able to do all of this just by a word. And the poor atheist, thinking that he has outsmarted and dethroned God, has actually robbed himself of the joy of seeing the fingerprints of his God in the creation. And more than that, he's deprived himself of the only thing better than rightly knowing the creation and that is knowing personally the creator of it all that would be the case for all of us we would all be at odds with this creator had he not done something else we we started with revelation now i want to talk about redemption in the garden remember what adam and eve did to deal with their sin they made coverings out of fig leaves They thought that it could hide them. You and I and all the created order have done the same thing. All humans have made our own fig leaf coverings. Cain, we're going to see this, Lord willing, next week. Cain was upset. He was embarrassed in a sense because his brother brought a better offering, so he killed his brother. He was hiding his shame. Of course, it only multiplied his shame. Judas Iscariot thought that a little more money would hide him. And so he sold Christ for silver. The Renaissance, the Enlightenment, modernity, post-modernity, all of it is an effort to justify ourselves, to hide our sin. Uh, all of human history is one sad, pitiful account after another of man trying to fix it ourselves. Man's efforts at self-redemption. None of it works but not all is lost. You go all the way back to the creation story, and it is pregnant with redemptive promises. Remember when Adam fell? He was a representative of the entire human race, and so when Adam sinned, we sinned as well. That's why uh, David would say, "In, in sin my mother conceived me. But even in the garden, God's promise of redemption was unfolding. So Genesis 3.15, God says to the serpent, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. That's speaking of of an offspring of Eve who would defeat the serpent, who would redeem mankind. Of course, Eve's thinking, well, it must be this first son, Cain. Talk about let down expectations there. But then God renewed the promised seed expectation to Abraham and then wove it all throughout the Old Testament, all the way up to the birth of Christ. Look with me at Luke 3 for a moment. Uh, I know we spent a lot of time in Luke, but it won't hurt you to spend a few more minutes there. In Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 23, Luke gives the genealogy of the Lord Jesus. Now, it's a great biblical trivia question. Which two gospels give the genealogy of Christ? Well, it's Matthew and Luke. Matthew gives a genealogy back to Abraham because he's showing Jesus' Jewishness. Luke goes all the way back to Adam. He goes all the way back to creation. But look at chapter 4. What happens immediately after we get to Adam in in the last verse of chapter 3? Chapter 4 Jesus is tempted. So was Adam, wasn't he? And Adam sinned, and with Adam, all mankind fell into sin. And so Jesus has the same experience, the same event of temptation. Satan comes tempting him seeking to tempt him to walk by sight and not by faith, just as Adam did, trying to get him not to believe the scriptures. But where the first Adam failed, the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, succeeded. The first Adam disobeyed, the second Adam was perfectly obedient. The first Adam forfeited paradise for himself and all his descendants, but the second Adam purchased paradise for his descendants with his own blood scripture separates humanity into two groups. You're either in Adam or in Christ. Apart from Christ, apart from faith in Christ, everyone who has ever lived is in Adam and in bondage to sin. To be in Christ is the only cure, the only covering, the only solution that we believe in Christ, that we receive him by faith as our head, and we gain all the benefits of everything he accomplished. That's where revelation and redemption meet. None of us was smart enough to figure this out on our own. Those whom Christ redeemed, he also reveals himself to. We know who God is, not because we were smarter than others, but because God revealed himself to us. Listen to John 10, verse 27 and 28. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they'll never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying here. If you turn away from the Lord Jesus, you follow in the footsteps of Adam. You're dead in your sins. But if you follow Christ and walk by faith in him and suffer with him and sacrifice for him, you live that life of faith, then then you receive him, the greatest of all rewards. This is why Hebrews is saying faith is the substance of things hoped for. When we turn away, From our own willful, stubborn, arrogant answers about what we want the world to mean and we turn to the reality of what God has revealed to us in his word and we grab hold of the Lord Jesus Christ as the second Adam, we begin to taste and see the goodness of God. Adam thought that by turning away he would taste what was really good in the garden. But we only taste that goodness in God himself. Adam and Eve thought the fruit looked delicious. Surely it will satisfy what we know through Christ is that only He can give us real, lasting satisfaction. And this God is only knowable. This redemption is only knowable through the revealed Word of God. How do we apply this text? First, we need to realize that although by common grace, humans are able to figure out all sorts of of wonderful things in realms of science, technology, and so on, we can only make sense of these things through the lens of Scripture. Everything figured out in this world can only be interpreted in light of the Scriptures. And so when you hear something taught that denies the teaching of Scripture, You know that it is in error. You know that what you are told is in error. Now, parents, let me particularly plead with you to train your children to see the world through that lens, that whatever God has revealed in Scripture, that alone is ultimate truth because there's an entire world that is going to seek to train them otherwise, and they're going to get to college, and college professors are going to say, you're such a fool for believing what the Bible says, and you have got to build your children up in the reality that only the revealed Word of God can be trusted to make sense of this world. Second, take time this week just to marvel in the wonder of God's creation. John Calvin said, There is not one blade of grass, there's no color in this world that is not intended to make us rejoice. You know, the world can rejoice in the beauty of nature, but that's not where it ends. Really, as w- if we want to rightly appreciate the glory of nature, it must lead us to the glory of the Creator God. Ooh, that's what, what nature does for us. It shows us more and more of the beauty of Christ. And then third, just as God formed the creation by His Word, so too is He building the new creation. So too is He building the church. Oftentimes, we think that God's word was enough to create the world, but we think we've got to have all sorts of techniques and strategies to build his church. But the principle is the same. As God's word is proclaimed, he is working. Some of you, he's working in your hearts right now, sanctifying you. Others, realizing you, you're realizing you need to come to saving faith for the first time. But that's what God does in the power of, of his word he did it in the creation and he does it today as his word is proclaimed in the pulpits of his churches may he do so even now as we pray together our lord and our god we praise you for your revealed word and that it tells us everything we need to know about the creation more importantly it tells us everything we need to know about redemption and what Christ has done for us in the cross, that His work is complete, it is finished, and that salvation comes not by us becoming as as civilized or as smart or as advanced as possible, but by looking to the Lord Jesus. And so we can say this morning, by faith, we believe that God created the universe, and we believe that... uh, He is building up a new creation, a second creation in the second Adam, building up his church. Would you build your church?